Hello and welcome to KPMG's Talking Tertiary podcast, where we reimagine tertiary education for a changing world. I'm Stephen Parker, KPMG's education sector leader in Australia. This episode comes from an event that I was fortunate to moderate in Perth on the 4th of September 2019. The event was the annual Western Australia Vice-Chancellor's Panel, run by CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. The panellists you'll hear from were Professor Deborah Terry AO, who is the Vice-Chancellor of Curtin University and currently the Chair of Universities Australia, Professor Selma Aliex, who is Pro-Vice-Chancellor and Head of the Fremantle Campus of the University of Notre Dame, Australia, Professor Steve Chapman, Vice-Chancellor and President Edith Cowan University, Professor Ava Leinonen, Vice-Chancellor of Murdoch University, and Professor Dawn Freshwater, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Western Australia. To start proceedings, the panellists were asked to address the question, are universities equipping graduates for the world of work as it will be across their lifetime? Thank you very much. And can I say how wonderful it is to see so many people here today. Are universities equipping graduates for the world of work as it will be across their lifetime? My answer is a resounding yes, and I'll justify this with four quick points. Firstly, universities are arguably one of the most successful and enduring institutions in the history of humanity. Across the centuries, What we stand for hasn't changed, but how we teach, what we teach, and how we support students have evolved to meet the needs of the day. We've stood the test of time precisely because we're adaptive and because, in a sense, we're both the creators and the disseminators of the future. To take some recent examples from Curtin, our mining engineering degree has recently been completely revised to put the digital reality of the industry centre stage. We have new offerings in fintech, design and visualisation, mechatronics, data science, predictive analytics, and we have an increasingly broad range of double degrees to cater for the diverse careers of the future. Secondly, in order to equip our graduates for a lifetime of work, we know that we need to support them to meet the demands of a rapidly changing work environment. As Deloitte argue, skills will be the job currency of the future. So lifelong learning is essential and universities need to provide opportunities for graduates to refresh their skills, to upskill, cross-skill and reskill which is why at Curtin we're offering flexible and targeted learning opportunities that over time can be stacked into new micro-credentials. And these new offerings can be paced to suit the learner, are delivered at our city campus or through slick digital channels and can be taken alongside our intensive training program for aspiring entrepreneurs. As one of my colleagues puts it, we're enabling learners to stream the playlists they've chosen or curated rather than requiring them to engage with the courses or indeed the albums that we've written, recorded and distributed. My third point is that universities are working to equip students for a lifetime of work by getting the balance right between deep discipline knowledge 
and broader transferable qualities such as communication, digital, entrepreneurial and collaborative skills. These skills are absolutely essential but they can't be focused on in isolation. As a participant in a workshop run for the New South Wales Department of Education put it, what's the use of learning to collaborate if you don't have anything distinctive to contribute? In the words of our Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, employers are looking for T-shaped workers with a horizontal bar reflecting those critical transferable skills combined with deep expertise in a discipline, the vertical line of the T, which reflects the, most in, the, the more enduring capabilities required for lifelong learning. In Alan's words, think of it like a garden trellis. Your subject or discipline gives you structure while you grow. Then you have the capacity to branch out. And to go back to curtain examples, to ensure that we graduate T workers, we provide rich work integrated learning across all of our faculties. We flip our classrooms so that the focus is on working with the content to problem solve and to innovate. And we use our Curtin Extra certificate to recognise participation in co-curricular activities that build transferable skills. My final point is that as we seek to equip our graduates for a lifetime of work, we're guided by the fact that navigating our future will require fundamentally human skills. As New York Times commentator Thomas Friedman puts it, the tech revolution will force humans to create value with hearts and between hearts. Our economy is and will continue to be global, so global perspectives and experiences are critical. Empathy, emotional judgment and cultural competency will underpin our social prosperity and a strong ethical and values-based framework is essential if we as a society are going to meet the big challenges of our times. For Curtin this means supporting global student mobility experiences across our four global campuses and beyond, providing Indigenous cultural competency programs through our Bush campus and exposing our students to a rich diversity of ideas views and perspectives. So in sum, I can assure you we are absolutely committed to equipping graduates for a lifetime of both productive and meaningful work in order to, as Geoffrey Bleich, former US ambassador in Australia put it, liberate the workforce to do the one thing that machines can't do, improve ourselves and the emotional lives of others. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk about this really pertinent topic. And whilst I agree completely with Professor Terry, um, I'm going to take a slightly different tact for the five minutes that I'm going to speak on. Very recently, I had an interesting conversation with my son, who's in year 12, um, whilst he was looking, trolling the net for, will robots take my job? And of course, he clearly went to the font of all knowledge, the internet, to decide on what his future was going to be. But this is a serious question. And at the University of Notre Dame, we've been discussing it for quite a few years. Because if you look at the slide, one of our objects or the mission of the university is about preparing our students for professions. Now, we know that research suggests that 40% of existing degrees will soon be obsolete. And traditional undergraduate and postgraduate degrees, in fact, could disappear within a decade. 
What does that do for our mission? Uh, are we prepared to take the risk to change it? Um, we haven't really had that in-depth in conversation. Now, I noticed that Ernest & Young has got a table here, and we're very grateful for the work they've done on universities as businesses. And they've come up with four models of universities. Now, whatever the model of university we're from, it really is important for us to make sure that the students that graduate from our universities, their attributes actually align with what our mission is. Um, and so I think it's really important that all of us, and Professor Terry's already mentioned lifelong learning, that all of us in our mission and our attributes do have lifelong learning as an outcome for our students. The model in the past has been study at school, do at work. This model is not going to work in the future, as we know, because it's been predicted that the average 15-year-old will likely have 17 jobs across five different careers in a lifetime. It's not possible to expect young people to stop and go back to university and TAFE every time they change their careers. The Northeastern University Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy in the US recently conducted a survey of 750 employers from all uh, sectors and organizational sizes. One of the foundational findings was that the majority of executives felt that the need for continuous lifelong learning will demand more credentialed qualifications from job seekers and high levels of education in the future. Their survey found that employers' top priority recommendations for universities was to include real-world projects and engagements with employers and with the world of work. This was followed closely by providing academic credit for experience and on-the-job learning, as well as including more industry-based validation of curricula. And I'm happy to say that the five universities in WA are already doing that. The conclusion of this study was that universities need to integrate their offerings more tightly into the fabric of the world of work. One of the strategies that uh, Professor Terry has already mentioned is micro-credentialing. Now, many of us know what that is, but for the uninitiated, it is uh, an educational curriculum that is much more industry-aligned and competency-focused. It indicates that we are entering an era with much greater overlap and in integration between education and experience. These are qualifications that individuals choose to study to improve a skill found in a particular industry or an area. The key difference between micro-credentialing and other qualifications offered by higher education institutions is that these, these qualifications are delivered as bite-sized chunks, illustrating the proficiency in a particular skill. The qualification types can take a few weeks up to a year to complete. So how do we equip our students to deal with the world of the future? The internet generation might be maligned as entitled and lacking in personal resilience, but research shows that they're also inclined to be highly ethical, naturally innovative, and fond of feedback. These characteristics we'll have to bear in mind when we write our programs. Keep abreast of industry trends, just like the Australian Space Agency has now advertised 20,000 jobs, uh, which will be available by 2030, so we need to be on the ball with that and prepare our students for that industry. Have an education system that is dynamic, which can move from a theoretical to a more flexible system focused on critical thinking. The collaborations that we have with government, businesses, and industry is also really important. Leadership staff at some organizations have recently suggested that liberal arts degrees are fundamentally important to the development of technology itself. And of course, the great aim of education we know is action according to Herbert Spencer. 
these educational offerings should allow students with an entrepreneurial uh, bent to actually do that within the university setting and use our extensive networks. From the educational perspective, the universities are facing a double challenge. One is to create, develop, and select effective pedagogies that address measurable components of micro-credentialing. And second is to prepare students for the labor market that is impacted by the disruption of emerging technologies. Fortunately, there is a growing interest by the universities to collaborate with other industries and other relevant groups. As Clay Shirky rightly says, a revolution doesn't happen when society adopts new tools. It happens when society adopts new behaviors. I'd like to finish with uh, what Henry Ford had to go through when uh, he manu started manufacturing cheap and reliable cars. The question he was asked was, uh, what's wrong with horses? Uh, but he did take a bet, and the rest is history. And I think as universities, we need to take those bets, but also importantly, win. Thank you. Are universities equipping graduates for the world of work as it will be across their lifetime? When I heard that question, I thought, really? What do you think we've been doing for the last 800 years? I might ask, is preparing for work the fundamental role of a university? Is it? Is that what you think it is? Universities are not simply about training people for a specific job. We have training organizations that can do that. A university has much loftier ideals. It's about improving the human condition through its teaching and research. It has a moral purpose in the discovery and dissemination of knowledge for the betterment of us all. I truly believe that's the fact about a university. Now, universities bring the ability to think to our students, and that is what prepares them for work across their lifetime. I was trained as a chemist at university, but it is not the specific chemical knowledge that serves me today in my job. Rather, it was the founding in the scientific method, an analytical ability, critical thinking, problem-solving skills. That's what serves me in my job. And I would imagine most of you in the audience who have degrees will agree. You probably don't use your core cur curricula. You use the skills that you learned at university. But actually, what we, if we look at the question, really, what it's saying is, how do we prepare people for the future of work? Now, the major forces that will define the future of work obviously include artificial intelligence and automation, with ever smarter machines performing ever more human tasks. The jobs of the future will inevitably be more data-driven and machine-powered. It is inevitable. Uh, as as the, the Dalek said to Dr. Hugh, re, Dr. Who, resistance is futile. It is going to happen. The jobs of, as I said, if you look at what employees are asking for in advertisements and see what, what's changing since 2012, the demand for digital literacy has increased by well over 200%, by critical thinking by over 150%, followed by creativity, presentation skills, teamwork by large percentages. These are the skills that will become increasingly important for the future of the work, and it is the instilling of these skills that, are, that universities are good at. It's what we do. I've heard many times people state that the future is in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And while there is no doubt in my mind that STEM skills will be important, a degree in STEM in itself will not guarantee a job in the future. 
The need for lifelong learning will be critical, and here, as we've heard previously, micro-credentialing will help. Routine or repetitive cognitive and manual jobs will continue to vanish, whatever Trump says. They are not coming back. And why should they? Why should we make a human do a repetitive job when a machine can do it much better? The Luddites' destruction of machines in the first Industrial Revolution proved ill-informed. New jobs came. They were just different jobs. Non-routine cognitive or manual jobs will increase, but the way we work will change. Entrepreneurial-like skills will be important as more of us are less fixed to so-called permanent job or single employer. Physical locations of work will change. Enhanced communication and collaboration pro pro platforms will make jobs truly global. The contract between employer and employee is changing. There will be more portfolio type working, i.e. more freelance, more, more one-person type jobs, the gig economy workers. And this leads me to reflect on the way our current government measures graduate success in the job market. And this measure, which is full-time employment within four months of graduation, is so profoundly out of step with the way the new economy is developing that it is losing any vestiges of credibility. It has to change. It simply has to. So to summarise, in order to prepare our students for the future of work, we need to, teach, to continue to teach them to think to be able to articulate their skills for multiple roles, to have core employability and professional skills. We've heard them before, communication, teamwork, cultural competence, digital literacy. But actually, I also want them to have strong values. We are a values-driven sector. They need to know that the potential of what they do can transform lives. How do universities do this? Through curriculum design, immersion in technology-enhanced learning environments, but with the time and the opportunity to reflect on a myriad of, experience, of, of experiences. And in my opinion, that is a particular ECU approach. Thank you. Uh, well, good afternoon. Um, let me tell you about Tuesday's classrooms at Murdoch University. And I need my slide up now. Thank you very much. I don't know what it is. Is it a building? <laughs> okay. So, just one, the one, that's the one. Okay, so let me tell you about Tuesday's classrooms at Murdoch University. On the screen are a few examples of our students learning in our classrooms. Forensic science students on a simulated crime scene, marine science students in the ocean, and vet students in a clinic. So real-world learning is a defining feature of our courses. And this, of course, is critical for equipping our students for the world of work. In 1926, our founding father, Sir Walter Murdoch, wrote very profound words. The only education out of which good can come is the education that teaches you to think for yourself rather than swallow whatever the fashion of the moment may prescribe. How ahead of his time was Sir Walter? Over 90 years later, the World Economic Forum has identified complex problem solving, critical thinking, and creativity as the skills critical for future work. So at Murdoch, our students practice these skills as part of their learning. And as you will note, these skills transcend disciplinary boundaries.
and are the unique life skills of a graduate. Well, the world's big challenges, such as climate change or elimination of hunger, they're not solved by experts in a single discipline. Hence, our students engage in interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary study. And some choose to study such future-focused majors as design thinking, entrepreneurship, artificial intelligence, robotics, and so on. We strive to design our curricula in collaboration with external experts and employers so that we remain relevant to the world of work. Murdoch University's undergraduate students leave the university with a personalized career management plan and at least 40 hours of hands-on experience. So we do much to try to enable our students to succeed in their futures. And this includes instilling our foundation principles into our students' thinking and living. They are equity and social justice, global responsibility and sustainability. And part of that future is, of course, the need to upskill and reskill while in the workplace as jobs and careers change over a lifespan. Learning while working is an imperative for us all and more than ever before, given the future ahead of us. Now, partnering with employers, training organizations, others to provide relevant, flexible, accessible, just-in-time and small bites of learning will be hallmarks of successful universities. The Federal Minister for Education, the Honorable Dan Tian, talks about the role of universities in producing job-ready graduates. He talks about the importance of universities in enhancing the productivity of our nation through education and research. He quotes data from the Alpha Beta study which estimates that in two decades, Australia will need to double its efforts on education to meet labour market needs. He also refers to the OECD ranking of university industry business collaboration, in which Australia is the lowest of the 27 countries ranked. So I would like to finish with a question for you. Does your organization have a role to play in collaboration with universities in equipping future graduates to enhance the economic and social well-being of our nation? And if so, what can we do better together? Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and I've been here long enough to now say I'm lucky last. There's no slide as a backdrop because I figure that you've got this wonderful venue and the wonderful environment to look at for the next five minutes. So please enjoy the scenery because I want to take a slightly different tack. And it's great to have had the four presentations already this afternoon because most of the statistics are out there. You have the evidence base laid before you. So let me go somewhere else. Let me start with the lifetime part of the lifetime of work. We're focusing on the work part. If we focus on the lifetime part, 
Let's think about what Soren Kierkegaard, Danish existential philosopher, said, which is rather apt today. Life must be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. At times of such uncertainty and instability as is predicted, predicted, not yet known, we often turn to literature, we turn to art, we turn to fiction, and we turn to philosophy. And in fact, some of the presenters have mentioned this already today. But a reminder that as we think about and predict the future using some of the statistics and some of the data that's already been quoted, the map is not the territory. So when our students and our future graduates enter into the territory, the map may not help them navigate. So what we need to think about is how to help them navigate amongst territory that can be very uncertain, continue to be unstable, and in terrain where they may not have the correct footwear. Mapping out the future of work we will only know whether we've done that as we understand it backwards. This is how it's always been, but we must try. It's the duty of the human to understand that there are things that it cannot understand. And yet we must try to give our students and future employees, future graduates, the opportunity to do that. Now, if you think about what the current workplaces are saying is relevant for them... In the 50 best places to work 2019 that was released last weekend, the things that stood out for the employees were retention, values, Steve, your comment, flexible, flexible working, and in Cisco, one of the things that stood out for them was giving the workers opportunities to mentor future STEM graduates so that it kept their skills alive. So the future of work is unknowable. It always has been. In that context, we need to think about how we equip people to live in that certain lifetime, which is uncertain. We know what we can do in universities to help in that regard, and you've heard some of that this afternoon. But as we help our graduates to think about their desired future and how we might help them imagine it and invent it, we have to support them to do so in a very different context. I'm not talking about globotics. I'm talking about six generations in the workplace. I'm talking about six generations of people in universities upskilling. This is a very different context. And ensuring that our students understand that they have agency in shaping their futures. We already said, in fact, Steve said this, we're not producing oven-ready graduates. That's not what this is about. That's my terminology. We don't put them in a microwave and have them ping out the other end. They're more likely to maximise their chances of success if we help them, and this will be my comment about helping students to be future-proof in terms of the way in which they have a lifetime of work. If we help them to form productive and mutually supportive partnerships. That is what is a part of a satisfying life. That's what we do. We do it at UWA through our partnerships with Seaman, for example, who, as you know, donated 
nearly half a million dollars worth of engineering software that is allowing students to work on digital twins of real-world energy. But the important thing is not just having them working on the software, it's actually that skills go around it. And let me introduce what I think is a new term to this forum. Rather than thinking about Industry 4.0 for our students, let's think about diversity 4.0 for our students, diversity of opportunities, diversities of roles, diversity of jobs, and in that diversity of partnerships. So to conclude, I would say that if we're asking ourselves what happens when students have to get into choppy waters, as they already are and will do in the future, we hope that as we support them through their learning, we want them to trust and respect their own choices as they navigate the terrain of technological literacy, human literacy and digital literacy for the future skills, the future leaders, the future um, innovators that we require in order to address what we'll need to think about in years to come when the next philosopher is reflecting on Kierkegaard's comments around the future and how we live it backwards. Thank you. Those were the opening remarks from the panellists, and we then started the panel discussion section of the event. Let me start off. At, in a way, I'm asking the question which uh, I think the panel were itching to address um, about equipping graduates. The question that you were addressing was about sort of current graduates and the world of work. But really what I'm interested in is equipping future graduates for a satisfying and productive life, more than just the world of work. And I think every one of our panellists actually moved into that area a bit, but I'd like to bring it out um, more. There's more to life, uh, presumably, than, than work. So who would like to pick up something there? Perhaps I'll look to my left to begin with. Dawn. Thanks, Stephen. I note you get the comfy chair for this piece. <laughs> um, at the moment. At the moment. Yeah. Um, not to say we're in the hot spots or anything, but, but I think I would like to just follow on from what I was saying in my presentation, which is this. First of all, what is a productive and satisfying life? And how can I assume, or how can anybody in this room assume that they know what that is and how to teach somebody else how to live that? Because what's productive for one person and what's satisfying for another person, there are huge numbers of variants. Having said that... My own perspective, and it was a perspective that I presented in the presentation, I think it's right across the higher education sector and across education, is that it's really important to equip people with the opportunities to create meaningful relationships, to create meaningful partnerships that will see them through very complex and difficult terrain, as the word I used earlier, that they're able to use the skills of critical thinking and ethical reasoning and communication and I think we talked about empathy earlier in a way that is helping them to live a productive, satisfying life. And, and I think to assume that we know what that is for others okay. would, for me, is a fundamental flaw in the question. For, for me, I think we have to unpick that and understand what it is that we're trying to achieve, which is trying to help people achieve, optimise their potential for a productive and satisfying life in the context of contributing to society as a citizen. Thank you, Dawn. Um, look, I might just move through the table, Ava. 
Um, sorry, did I? Do I? It's on. It's on. Okay, excellent. Um, just trying to think what is there more to say other than I think uh, a productive and, and satisfying fly, uh, life is something to do with the human condition. What is it that makes us want to uh, live a good life, but also what is it that enables us to do that? And I do have to go back to Sir Walter. You know, Sir Walter Murdoch had something very profound to say in 1926, and that is that if you are able to think for yourself rather than swallow whatever the fashion of the moment prescribes. You know, as a parent, if I was able to send my child to a university that was enabling him or her to somehow live that, I think I would be doing a very good job as a parent. And I think we would be doing a very good job as a university. So I don't think there's any, you know, we cannot predict what the future holds. But I do want to remind all of us that this is not the first time in the history that the workforce is changing. Pre-industrial revolution, industrial revolution, you know, this, this has happened through history. And what do you need to do is adapt, but also be innovative and be able to go back to Sir Walter, think for yourself and be creative. So, um, you know, I think it's an exciting time. And I think what we need to also do is instill in our students the excitement of the future, an excitement of change, and not fear of change, because that is often part of human condition as well. So there's just a few thoughts. Thank you, Eva. Steve. Um, so I guess we acknowledged, all of us, um, that the world was changing, AI, automation, data, all of those things are changing the way we're going to live our lives. And so all of the skills that we've heard, adaptability, our ethics, enterprising, sophisticated problem solving, community, all of those things we need to instill in people um, and to have a good life. I think there is a, an issue with the way we are looking at data and artificial intelligence in that it, it, as we know, is going exponentially. We know what Moore's law is like and it's still going on um, and we're still being left behind in terms of the way we look at it in a, in a philosophical way. I mean, the aesthetics of it, the ethics. Have we got the ethics worked out for what our life will be like under an AI world? Um, and, and, and obviously the skill of logic in philosophy. I just want to make one further point, though, that I think there's a major disconnect between what we've all said and what we all believe universities should be for, the civilising force in, in the country and in the world, and our government. Uh, I think we are, we are being metricised and performance-based funding funded into areas that are not what we want to be like. So we need to try and get a connect between what we want a university to be and explain to government why we're worth funding. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Selma. Thank you. Um, I, you know, look, it, it doesn't necessarily become the responsibility of universities to teach lifelong skills uh, because, you know, by the time they graduate with us, it's, you know, 22 and 23, and we expect that they'd have some, com some life skills before then. Um, but wouldn't it be wonderful if the same theme went through school as well? as uh, then coming through universities, and we consolidate the skills they come through uh, to with us. It's, um, it's something about planning. It's something about looking to the future. It's about their characteristics that we know they're going to have. Uh, they're going to be very loyal. They're going to be very ethical uh, performers. But we need to hone in on those skills, I think, and then just consolidate those for them. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen. I guess I would... Uh, 
I think take the question slightly differently. I think one of the issues that we, we, we've all been debating is, in fact, you know, what is the future of work? And I think a lot of us, and you've heard it with each of the presentations, in some ways are reacting a little bit against you know, headlines of this number of jobs are going to disappear. But I do think, as universities, we, we do need to adapt to the fact that our graduates are going to go into a workforce where the tasks of jobs are going to change. There's going to be some different jobs, new jobs, and that needs to be part of the narrative that some jobs will disappear. I don't think nearly as many as what was first proposed, but some will disappear, the very routine jobs. There'll be new jobs, and we need to graduate. Uh, we need the graduates to be able to go into those new roles. And tasks in, in a lot of the jobs that, stay, that, that remain are going to change. And so we do have to accept, I think, as, as universities, that we've got a responsibility, A, to uh, ensure that our students learn how to think in a particular discipline, and that, I guess, goes to one of my points, that we do expose them to opportunities to gain those broad skills and those human skills, those ethical skills and ethical thinking, which we know are so critical, but at the same time recognise that, particularly for postgraduates, uh, that people are going to have to upskill more, more than our generation did. And we're going to have to think about ways of offering those opportunities, doing it. It's not a two-year master's program where you come onto campus Wednesday afternoons. That is not the future. It's got to be fit for purpose. It's got to be bite-sized. It's got to be flexible. And that's, that is where universities do need to change. And I guess my point is we are changing. We're changing quite quickly to respond to those, those changing needs. Good. Thank you, Deb. Um, I'm going to take one question uh, from Pigeonhole, but then I'm going to look around for um, live volunteers, as it were. Um, the leading question in this Cedar Vision question contest um, is as follows, with 19 um, votes, or in support of asking the question at least, most degrees are still broadly described, but if skills are the employment currency of the future, how should universities rebadge their programmes to be clearer to potential employers? So, there's an assumption or two in, in there, but who would like to... Okay, Ava? First. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, I will talk a little bit about postgraduate learning because that's relevant, uh, very relevant to employers and uh, the agenda for skilling and upskilling and, and, and changing uh, the workforce uh, to be responsive to the changes around um, the world. And um, I think we already, it has already been said, but what I said in my presentation was that it's going to be a hallmark of a successful university that is able to provide flexible learning. And, and the examples that we have now, and Murdoch University is, is doing this at this point in time, is providing a flexible learning framework, which means that it's a bit like a pick and mix, where you can uh, take units that are relevant to the world of work, or your employment, or even your interest. And, and then you may study for a degree, you may not, you might take credit for it, you might not. It might add up to something, it's up to you. And I think this, uh, and, and, and the framework and what's in, what's in it 
will be designed together with employers, other organizations, other stakeholders, but also trying to really look into the future. I recently spoke with the um, CEO of Alpha Beta, you know, I mentioned that sure. consultancy organization. And he was saying to me that he was sending some of his staff to do a little bit of learning on, uh, about machine learning because they need to know about it. So, you know, two members of staff went to do a, a short course on that. And of course, then things like online learning, but blended learning importantly because it's about human networks. So blended learning is where you do some learning online and then you have some in situ with, with colleagues and others. So, um, so I think that's probably, um, you know, okay. degrees are not prescribed, should not be described in the future, and particularly those that are uh, really looking to um, uh, work with the workforce cannot be. Good. I'll take a couple more quick responses. I'm keen to get as many questions through as possible. So the issue is about badging of the degrees and whether they're sending the right, sending certain signals to employers. So quickly, Dawn, first, and then... I'd like to talk about um, the way that UWA has really fallen foul of this and is changing that. Because actually, if you think about our broadened platform in terms of our degree, we have a very broad platform. It serves as a springboard for a number of careers and many directions. But actually, it's really important that in doing that broadening, we also talk about very explicitly where there are opportunities for depth. And having the breadth and depth articulated in your op offering and in the proposition to employers and in discussion with employers is really critical. Okay. And that's one of the things I think that I would say is really important in terms of labeling. So, okay. you know, if you're doing something in information management, it might be that that is addressing cybersecurity issues, but if you call it information management, it won't necessarily be the thing that people are interested in. Okay, thank you. Steve? I'm not sure if, clearly, the rebadging, you could argue, is simply a marketing exercise. You can badge it something any way you want. Um, the first thing you have to recruit the student to do the degree, and the second thing, the employer has to be interested in it. Curricula has been cha is changing now rap more rapidly than it's ever changed before. The nature of the degrees are changing more rapidly uh, than they've ever had before. And the important thing is for that to be reflected in the CV of the individual, so that there's a good descriptor about what the degree is about. You can't just rebrand it by changing a title. That simply doesn't work. It's got to be much more depth behind it, and that's how you explain it in the CV of the, uh, CV of the student. And that's explained to them through careers development, etc. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Just quickly add, because I know where uh, you're conscious of time, I think it, it, is, it is about articulating more clearly uh, what, what, what the particular skills are going to be are, are focused on in a particular degree, and I agree with Steve that's partly marketing. But I think what we need to do, and, and I think institutions are working in this way, to be clearer on what we are seeking to deliver through the whole student experience. So it's degrees. It's also, as I talked about, what we call the Curtin Extra Certificate. This is a way in which students get something that identifies the co-curricular activities that they've been engaged in, which we think are important for leadership, for all sorts of other skills and attributes. But it's also about what, you know, the, uh, the global experiences, making it clear that we want one in four of our students to have a global experience. Why do we want them to have that? Because we think it's important for their future. And, you know, we want them to take advantage of these opportunities and being much clearer about 
why we are delivering those things and how they are part of the whole distinctive, in our case, Curtin experience or in any one of our universities. Make a quick comment. Uh, in terms of the uh, exposure to the industry, um, I think it's really important that the partners, are, the relationship with the partners is really, really important. Exposing the students as early as possible to the profession that they're going to work in so they can, in fact, keep abreast of what changes are going on is also really important. And we all do work integrated learning really well, so th that's what I'd like to say. Okay, now... Um, I do have one or two questions which are 18 with a bullet, as they used to say, rising up the charts here, but I'm keen to get some live in-person involvement. Who'd like to ask some questions? We'd a bit of challenge in it uh, as well, if possible. Um, questions? Hello. Um, firstly, thank you for all the talk about thinking and values, uh, which is very refreshing to hear from pretty much all the panellists. Um, my question, perhaps on the other side of the spectrum, but it's not, um, is what you think the collective responsibility of the universities is in relation to our very particular place and economy. So how do you see the universities' roles in a more collective sense um, as leaders and contributors to Western Australia and Perth? And I might ask Deborah Terry, as Chair of Universities Australia, to yep. Yep. Answer, deal with that one first. No, thank you. Thank you for the question. And I think collectively both in Western Australia, but also Australia more broadly, obviously the university sector is an incredibly important part of our whole innovation system. Now, we heard a little bit this morning about you know, comments around industry links and universities. We need to work even harder to have those strong links to, be very, to ensure that our research uh, is being commercialised, is getting out there into the new jobs of the future, that we are working very closely with industry, whether it's here in Western Australia or more broadly, to understand what they are looking for in terms of our graduates. That is absolutely critically important. And, I mean, I think our sector as a whole plays an incredibly important role in terms of our future productivity and our... Our, our future economic growth, which is, I think, very much where the Minister is coming from in terms of his discussions around how we relate with industry, how we need to relate more effectively with industry. I think we do that well in Western Australia, but there's always more that, that, that we can do. And that we are ensuring that the graduates are coming out with the skills, the perspectives, the content that industry is looking for into the future. Okay. Thank you. Adorn. I think it was. Fred, can I respond to the collective part of your question? Because Deb's answered some of what we do in terms of productivity and growth. Your question was also about how we work collectively. And I was really pleased to have the opportunity recently to speak at the Defence Science Technology Conference in Adelaide at Edinburgh to talk about what we're doing in Western Australia as Team WA5 universities working with other parts of the um, of different parts of industry, but also with government in the way in which we're delivering, not only on the skills for future defence trades, but also the work that we're doing together to make sure that this state is competitive when we're actually bidding for 
um, being parts of, for example, the space agency, which you know doesn't necessarily sound like it's related to defence, but it is. And of course, we're doing that whether it's related to agriculture or whether it's related to other parts of the sector. And I think we do have joint capability statements in this state as five universities, which other states would only like to emulate. I might go to the next um, question, the top polling question. Um, in the spirit of collectivism and collaboration, I'm asked, are there too many universities in Western Australia? Okay. Can I take it? No, I'm going to take it. <laughs> Please don't fight over it. You can be next. I don't want to take it. I, 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 <laughs> the answer is clearly no. Um, if, you, if you look at the average size of a university around the world, it's about 10,000 students. In Scandinavia, it's about 8,000 students. Uh, in, in, in Canada, it can be in the tens of, tens of thousands. So we have a university sector in um, Western Australia. ECU's about 30,000, I think. Curtin's 40 more, maybe, and et cetera. So in terms of size, viability of university, there is no reason why we shouldn't have that many universities. But even more importantly... The richness of this state is, in its universities is because of the diversity. So have a look at our vision statements. Have a look at our missions. They're very different. Have a look at the sort of students that want to do nursing at ECU or physics at Curtin. They're going because they want to go to that university. That university has a certain ethos. It has a certain way of doing things. And that diversity is to be praised. So, no, we do not have too many universities in Western Australia. I'd be happy to see if there was competition from a few others. Uh, I remember when ECU was... I don't remember when ECU was formed, but I've read the book. <laughs> uh, uh, and when it was being formed, guess who didn't want it to be formed? All the other universities. Because they didn't want competition. Competition's good. We compete for students, and we do a good job. That's why the quality of, of the okay. student experience we give in Western Australia is a very okay. good one. So right. the answer is no. OK, and maybe there should be more. Uh, OK, Deborah. I'll follow on from Stephen. As you've heard, uh, we, we collaborate, we play to our strengths, and I think that is, is, is very important. We also, if you look you know, regionally in WA, we've got a big area to cover, and again, we're quite... Uh, specific in the areas where we are focused as institutions. We, we you know, ECU, Bunbury, us, Kalgoorlie, etc. So I think the answer is no, but we need to play to our strengths, which we do, and we need to collaborate, which we do as well. Okay. Thank you. Ava? Um, the reason I was so keen to speak to this is because I think it was last week or the week before I was on a panel that discussed this very topic and it was at the Australian Financial Review Education Summit in Brisbane. And the question was something along the lines, do Australian universities need to merge in order to be globally competitive? And we had a really discussion around that. And I think the answer at the end of it was no, not for that reason. There may be other reasons why mergers might happen. Size wasn't important, that came through it. Caltech has 2,000 students, 4,000 staff, 34 Nobel Prize winners. That's pretty globally competitive. So, and also, is there sort of um, optimum size for the numbers of um, the dem uh, demographic um, distribution for university? Well, answer was no, because you know we have about 2.2 million uh, people in Western Australia. 
Um, there are, I think Vienna has something about the same, uh, about 24 universities. So, you know, you can go around in circles on this one. Uh, but I have to say that the panel actually looked at it in, uh, in quite a lot of detail and we had a good conversation and you can probably go and have a look at it online if you're interested. Okay, thank you. I think might have done that one. Um, something live from the floor. Yes, over here, please. Could you please give your name you. and your... Uh, Susan King, Edith Cowan University, but speaking individually. And given the topic, I'm not a robot. Right. Um, uh, I've recently, like many of you, been part of a, actually Australian Institute of Management Fellows Network discussion of the topic of disruption through AI and robotics and the like in the job in the work labour market. And I think it was the Price Waterhouse Coopers report with its multiple scenarios and etc. etc. Very colourful, very good, very thought provoking. But it got me quite depressed and because at one stage there was a discussion in the report of how can we make AI and robotics and all the other changes coming um, better for community, society and individuals. The negative, in, the positive, not the negative in other words. And one of the suggestions was that uh, there really had to be a willingness on the part of governance and major organisations to look at the impact of these developments and see how they could be developed in a way or the options going for in a way where there were the best outcomes not just the financial bottom line. That might be a bit naive. And it impressed me a bit because I didn't see any indication that was happening. Climate change, we're now starting to have major entities and governments look at, well, what is the impact? What should we be doing? We probably have to start looking at so that. in the interest of time, can we yep. come to the yep. question? And, and, yes, sorry about that. Right. And so my question really was, there is a question, is we're talking about students and preparing them but is there a role for universities in trying to be influencers, that might be again naive, to try and get people looking at the impacts, how to best do it, how to preempt and, and ameliorate negative impacts that accentuate the positive? So there was a question there. Thank you. <laughs> right. I'd like to pick that one up. Dawn. I might just start by talking about the way in which we already do that, and we are already significant influencers. It goes a bit to the earlier question around our role in engagement in the community and the regions and beyond that. So we do that not only through our, our students and through our staff. Don't forget, our academic staff are not just engaged with the existing students on campus. They're externally focused in the way in which they're working with other employers with industry and with government and not-for-profits to influence through evidence and through evidence that's usually based on very sound research and decision-making. We also do that particularly through policy. So one of our roles is how we inform and influence policy. And the Public Policy Institute that um, certainly at UWA has a very key role to play in bridging the gap between what's happening within universities and then what happens and is made real within communities and particularly in the regions and in the broader um, rural and remote communities. And so that's one of the things that we're working on, not just in terms of policy implementation, but policy generation. That's one of the ways in which we influence. 
Um, yeah, um, thanks, Steve. It's important, I think, uh, just following on from Dawn's uh, point about having a voice around the table. Uh, it's about being present, uh, and that is, you know, when it comes about communication with the government, com communication with the industry, it's about partnering with them, but also uh, being accountable and having a voice for your particular area. I think that's important. Very briefly, uh, Susan, it's a very important question. Universities are the original disruptors. We're leading a lot of research in this area and we therefore have a responsibility to show leadership in terms of how we put in place the appropriate ethical frameworks, regulatory frameworks for artificial intelligence, for technology, and that is occurring. Good, thank you. I might go to um, the next question which has come up through Pigeonhole, but I might broaden it out a bit. It's, um, it's about the tertiary system as a whole. It's about the relationship between higher education and vocational education. One of the comments that's come through has noted that higher education has expanded markedly in the last decade or so. Vocational education has fallen on hard times, particularly perhaps public vocational education. Have we got the right balance in our, in our tertiary system between higher and vocational education? Is there coherence, collaboration, integration? Um, what needs change? I'll come to Steve on that. Um, first of all, it's not a zero-sum game. And that's what often has happened in, in other jurisdictions. I came from Scotland, where the funding council was merged to bring higher education funding and vocational funding together. That actually was a disaster, but it actually turned out to be a disaster for the vocational side. It could have been a disaster in the other side. I guess my point here is that both have to have a parity of, of esteem, but they do different things. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to get government to realise is that both deserve appropriate funding for the outputs and outcomes they make. I guess, unfortunately, if you look at the way government wants to fund various things, take the universities... We are on, out of 37 OECD countries, Australia is 34th in the investment it puts in higher education. I think if you went into the TAFE sector, you'd probably find a similar sort of, of problem. So I, don't, I think the issue is, we, we, I, we were, ECU has more links, I think, with the TAFE sector than any other university probably in Western Australia. We work very well with them, and I can give lots of examples of that. So they're both hugely valuable, they do different things, but I don't, again, I think there's a kind of disconnect between the way government sees it and the way we see it. So I do believe more investment is required in the TAFE sector, mm -hmm. but it's not a zero-sum game, so you don't do that by simply robbing it from another sector. Any further Thoughts or really quite unfortunate that we were not able to get the post-secondary education review yeah. across the line uh, through the general election because that looking at the way in which the TAFE vet and higher education, the tertiary sector more broadly, can work together to see ourselves as working on a continuum is what Steve I think is referring to as well because we all have something to offer. There's a, a much broader picture around that that we're looking at with Minister Tian at the moment in terms of the way in which we bring a whole series of reviews together to get more than the sum of the parts. That's the federal issue. In the state, we're doing a huge amount. So we've got already got examples of where we're working, for example, with South Metropolitan TAFE and the government with Rio through the universities to deliver on the only qualifications so far in the nation on automation. So in actual fact, we're sector leading in this state because of some of the industries we're working with, which has tailor-made curriculums. But the bigger picture for us, thinking about it as a whole, is what we need to do 
federally in order to address the, the, the real issue, which yeah. is the Cinderella, actually the Cinderella parts of the yeah. um, spectrum that we're talking about. Thank you. Ava. Um, does this work? No. Um, um, on the collaboration, and particularly I think how could we do more together in workforce development is something we need to think about, because uh, if we are taking lifelong learning seriously, it doesn't necessarily mean that all that learning will take place in higher education or the vet sector. We need to be more connected. But I was also recently talking with Minister Tian about um, rural and regional education and how could we be more connected as sectors to take education that is relevant to um, more hard-to-reach uh, regions. And uh, one of the sort of thoughts we had was that Perhaps we could utilise each other's facilities. Universities have already spoken about that, Western Australian universities. But I think I was told that there are 26 TAFE sites across Western Australia. So, you know, that will give huge reach for all of the education, the whole of the education sector if we were connected. Okay, thank you. I just, I mean, very quickly. Both need to be strong. It's not a zero-sum game. Uh, and you do, we do need to ensure that there is more... That, that the sectors do work more effectively together. It is still very hard, I think, for an individual student who's seeking to come from the TAFE system and then enter university. It's often a one... You know, a, a conversation for a single person. We need to have clearer agreements right. with TAFE, and we are doing a lot... Uh, along that, but they, they need to work together more effectively. Thank you. Seamless, a seamless transition from the vet sector into the higher ed sector. Yeah. And vice versa? Yeah, and vice versa. Um, question from the floor, please. If not, I'll ask about disruption. <laughs> yes, please. Hi, my name is Kelly. I'm from the Pilby University Centre. Hmm. Uh, my question is basically around the university's strategy for, in respect to engaging and supporting rural, remote and regional communities and the students within those communities. Good. Thank Can you. Uh, look, it's a, it's a great question to ask and I did want to mention a project that Ava's team is leading with all the five universities. It goes back to um, widening the participation of students from rural and remote areas and five universities are working together, thanks to Romy who's been leading the team. Uh, in terms of making sure that we talked about micro-credentialing before, that uh, we offer small uh, packaged kind of components to students, so when they decide to come to any of the universities, we actually all give them credit for the same thing. So it's a joint um, decision. We all accept those kinds of credits, and we allow them to have their degrees in small packages. So that's being done between the five universities, and we're very proud of that fact. Thank you. Um, I might just, have a just uh, Kelly, it's a very good question. I think it's core to all of our missions that we do have a responsibility to be working with regional hubs to ensure that students in regional and remote WA in particular do have access to university pathways. We need to do it sustainably and we need to, to be very focused. And I think you've heard from Selma, we are working together uh, across the institutions 
but I think that we, we're now in an environment where we can use quite a lot of what we do, for instance, on Open Universities Australia platform to have sort of blended models which do allow us to, to serve small numbers of students in regional centres and to augment some of the online material with face-to-face -face tutorials. But it's a responsibility of all of our institutions and we do take it seriously. Okay, thank you. I might move to one final um, question, which is, is the disruption question. When, when Clayton Christensen came forward with the idea of disruptive innovation, he said that established players are threatened, disrupted from beneath. And I, I wrote a piece in the Australian Financial Review called What Lies Beneath. And to the confusion of my family, they published a picture of Michelle Pfeiffer next to my name because she'd starred in the film um, What Lies Beneath. Well, whether disruption comes from beneath or on top or from one's on side, where do you think, if you do think, uh, disruption is coming from for your institution? I'd like to say that it's coming from our own institutions. We're actually very good at disrupting ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we're continuing to do so, and we're doing so in very different ways. So, of course, it's coming from many other places. But actually, it's really important that we continue to recognize that unless we disrupt ourselves, we are okay. going to continue to be disrupted. We have to be doing both of those things. Okay. Thank you, Dawn. I'll, I'll move through the speakers and then close it. Okay. Um, so, uh, that is absolutely the case that universities have a role to disrupt themselves. And we do that very well indeed. But also, I wanted to include students in this. You know, students are the future. Students have ideas that uh, we cannot dream of. And if we are educating them well, they will be good disruptors within the universities, but also once they leave. Okay, thank you, Steve. Very briefly, disruption is coming from everywhere. It is coming from us, coming from international competition. It's coming from technological. It's coming from data-driven, all of these things. But the, the one thing I would say is, Universities are incredibly resilient organisms, and however much disruption comes, I'm absolutely certain they're still going to be here, and they're still going to be the originators of disruption. So when you think of all the modern things you've got, like um, the treatment you get in hospital, gene technology, all the data-driven stuff, where do you think it started? It mostly started in universities. You could ask the question, is that going to be the future? But I, 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 and I think it will be because of our resilience. But that's where it started. So I'm not worried about disruption. It's great. Bring it on. Okay. Uh, yes, I think dis disruption uh, is a negative word, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, it's, it's about being prepared. It's about being vigilant. And it's about scrutinizing what's on the horizon and then putting your strategies in place to deal with that. Well, I think, as I've already said, we are the original disruptors. Okay. Perhaps we'll reframe it and say we're the original uh, innovators. But, in fact, the theory of disruptive innovation that you wrote about, Stephen, of course, came from a Harvard University yeah. academic. Yeah, it goes to my very point. But, no, I, 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 I mean, I, I think you've heard uh, we, we disrupt ourselves uh, and we need to. I think we question what we do all of the time. And it's why you're seeing micro-credentials, all... This has been led by the universities. We've now got a, a, a review of the Australian Qualifications Framework in a sense which is trying to catch up with what we are doing. We are disrupting, particularly in the postgraduate space. Our students are, disrupt, uh, are, are disruptive as well in a good sense. They're questioning us. What are we doing about particular issues? We had a fantastic academic board meeting just last week where we had one of our strong student leaders stand up, you know, and she was impassioned about 
climate change and what more we needed to be doing as institutions. That's what universities do and that's why they're such great places. Terrific, thank you. I'm enthusiastically being entreated to allow one more question uh, right. from that quarter, from John Wood. John Wood, Centre for Stories and Camino Global Education. I'd be interested in the panel's comments on what it takes to be a university in the context of Peter Coldrake's recent, re recent report on that topic. Okay, and specifically about the research requirement, John? Specifically about the research requirement? Well, I, defining... just, I, I guess whatever, you know, Peter's okay. specified right. the four till two, I'm just interested okay. in comments because I think it's relevant for the future. Okay, so a response to the anticipated cold oak report. Um, look, it, it, it seems fine by me. Clearly the thing that differentiates a university from any other form of education is the, the research function it has. And Peter, I think, has is, is, is given conservative numbers on what he expect, expects the number of doctoral areas you need to be in, the percentage of research you need to have at world standard. I don't think there's any problem for the universities in Australia. Uh, he's simplified the, 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 the categories. So I, 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 what do I think? I think it's fine. I don't have a problem with it. I hope it's, it's open enough that aspiring institutions like ECU was many years ago have the chance to meet those targets and become universities in the future and further disrupt us. So I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Okay. Quickly, please. Yeah. Yep. Uh, just a quick comment. I think Peter Coldrake has been very mindful about the fact that Australian higher education needs to be competitive in the global context. Mm -hmm. Therefore, universities will need to have a strong research performance. Well, I hope you enjoyed this extended episode where we heard from a group of vice-chancellors at the annual Western Australia VC panel event, which is run by CEDA. Thank you to CEDA for holding this event, in particular the CEO, Melinda Salento, and the WA State Director, Paula Rogers. You can listen to other episodes in this season on our website, kpmg.com slash au slash talking tertiary or wherever you find your podcasts thanks for listening and i'll speak with you next time on talking tertiary